You know, if you break someone's legs and give them crutches, right? Okay, fine. But instead of worrying about taking away the crutches, stop hurting their legs. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. By hook or by crook, you found yourselves once again listening to this show, the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 148. Today's show notes can be found over at lionsofliberty.com slash 148. Today's show is sponsored by our friends at Health Excellence Select, an amazing, affordable alternative to Obamacare insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. We are also sponsored by our good friend Dan McCall over at Liberty Maniacs, who has filled my drawer with awesome Liberty and satirical shirts. If you want a 10% discount on your entire order, you can use the discount code Lions of Liberty at checkout. That's LibertyManiacs.com. My guest today is a professor of economics at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. He's the author of several books, including Micro Foundations and Macroeconomics and Austrian Perspective. Monetary Evolution, Free Banking, and Economic Order, and most recently, a new book he's just put out entitled Hayek's Modern Family. He writes regularly at several websites, including Bleeding Heart Libertarians, Coordination Problem, and the Foundation for Economic Education, Fee, where he recently wrote an article entitled Don't Smash the State, which we'll be discussing a little bit later here today. He is, of course, Steve Horowitz. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast, Steve. Oh, it's glad to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, Stephen. As I mentioned at the top there, we'll be discussing your article, Don't Smash the State, in a bit here. But as I do with all my guests, I'd like to first get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you just start off telling us about yourself? How did you first become interested in, in economics and liberty? Well, I can talk first about how I became a libertarian, and then the economics will come from that. I've been a libertarian since I was 16, so I was an, you know, a, a, an early bloomer. And I was always, as a teenager, like a lot of you know, young men are, especially young men who become libertarians, I was into sci-fi and kind of weird stuff. Anyone who had a kind of weird, wacky theory, you know, chariots of the gods and, and all that kind of stuff, Bible prophecy, whatever. And I used to work at the public library. One day a book came across the, the shelf there, a new book called Restoring the American Dream by a guy named Robert Ringer, who was an investment type and a libertarian. This was 1979, 1980. And, you know, here's a guy with a theory, right? Different way of looking at the world. And it was a, the book was basically a case for libertarianism. You know, I got the book from the library, read it, and was persuaded, and then went into the library's card catalog and started finding the stuff that was in his references. I believe the next book I read was Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty. And so that's like kind of from the, you know, frying pan into the fire sort of thing. So from there, I, you know, I just started following up the people who they were talking about, and I started reading more libertarian stuff. I read Ayn Rand shortly after that. I actually came across Rand in a high school AP literature class, which was great. And then I, you know, I read some Rand, and I read, started reading The Austrian Economist. And I went to college intending to be in computer science, and my freshman year, I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to be serious about this libertarian stuff, I probably should know some economics. So I took Intro Econ my second semester of my freshman year as kind of a you know fifth course just to have it. And I think I had that moment that lots of uh, economists have where you're in that class and you're, you know, there and you go, wow, you know, you have the scales fall from your eyes and the world makes sense. And you go, yeah, this is how I've always thought about things. But now someone, you know, has kind of systematized it. And so uh, from there I was, you know, uh, I got into economics. I majored in economics and philosophy at University of Michigan and did my uh, PhD work at George Mason University in the, in the late 80s. 
and the rest, as they say, is history. It's a very common theme, I find, from my guests that a lot of people first get the, the wheels turning on this stuff from works of fiction, particularly science fiction. You know, Robert Heinlein is often mentioned. Of course, everyone mentions Ayn Rand. So, I mean, it's, it's really interesting how we don't start to think about things like this in a deeper way. You know, the, the, the sort of consequences of our political thought until we can actually see sort of a, a fictionalized version of how a lot of this stuff plays out. So I always find that fascinating. Yeah, and fiction lets us lets us also critique the status quo in, a, in creative and interesting ways. I'm still the only person I know, though, personally anyway, who for whom that Ringer book actually made them a libertarian. So that's my little unique claim to fame, at least among my friends anyway. Well, we're almost 150 episodes into the show, and I can confirm you're the first one to, to bring <laughs> that name up. So you're, you're right so far. Miracle evidence. Steve, I'll let you explain in further detail in a second about this article you recently wrote, Don't Smash the State. And it's basically an idea that's often heard in libertarian circles. Uh, You mentioned Sheldon Richmond had made this analogy back in 1981 in an article about basically seeing the state or the government as an onion and how, you know, instead of peeling back the layers, we just need to smash the onion. And this is kind of similar to a concept that's been put forth by Murray Rothbard, who who you reference as a major influence. Uh, He would always say, you know, if if you could push a button today to end the state, would you do it? And of course, Rothbard considered himself to be a button pusher or an, an abolitionist as, as he would refer to it and you also mentioned this is an attitude you used to share as well and uh, that you used to agree with it when you were a lot younger so why don't we just start there what about that concept that put forth there the idea of screw this incrementalist stuff forget trying to peel back laws we just need to end the state overnight and get there as fast as possible so what back then 1981 steve horowitz what about that appealed to him <laughs> Well, I think I think part of it is you know when you're a young man and young woman you're you you know you're sort of filled with passion and especially passionate injustice. And by the way, the pushing the button thing is not Rothbard's original. That's Leonard Reed of all people from Fee who wrote a piece called "I'd Push the Button" and Murray picked it up from Leonard Reed. But anyway, so I think when you're young, right, that's that's where you are. You're you're angry. You're you, you know the world sucks and you want to make the world a better place and and you tend to sort of see things in, in radical ways. And and I think you're also you know, you you are not quite there in terms of understanding that things are often more complex than they seem to be. And I think my younger self, and I'm still very sympathetic, don't get me wrong, right? I mean, you know, injustice anywhere, right? as Martin Luther King said, right? You know, so leaving any injustice anywhere, right, is, is a problem. So I, I think my younger self was just, you know what, the state is evil and wrong and bad and we just got to smash it and and get rid of it and start you know sort of start clean and and when you then start to think about what that really means and about the way in which people you know sort of social institutions are structured it's a lot it's just more complicated than that and there's a moral dimension to it too which i kind of touch on in the in the in the piece for the freeman too so, so, so when did that first start to change for you when did was there a moment that it stands out when you said you know what i gotta kind of rethink this concept that i had been so so kind of clinging to for some time I don't think there was any one moment. I think it's a slow process. Um, I certainly think part of it is one of the, the sort of things that generated that was the more kind of I was identifying as a bleeding heart libertarian. And the bleeding heart part there is not the sort of I still think of myself, you know, as sort of philosophically an anarchist. It's just a question of how do we get there, right? And I think the bleeding heart part reminds us that we have to be mindful about how not just the state, but getting rid of the state impacts the least well-off among us. And so I think thinking about some of those issues and thinking about how to, how to unwind the state in a way that is humane as well as just, uh, I think is, is part of what we, got me thinking about those issues. Now, you weren't a huge fan, at least now you're not, of the onion analogy, the 
peeling back the layers analogy or smashing the onion as, as Sheldon Richmond put forth. And you use a different analogy in your article and you're, you're relating the state or coercive government, whatever you want to call it, to a bomb. So why don't you just describe your analogy there a little bit? Some friends who are, you know, bomb experts suggest maybe this isn't how it actually works. But, <laughs> but sort of the movie version is, right, when you defuse a bomb, you've got to, you know, it's a bomb, right? And when you defuse a bomb, you got to be careful. You can't just, you know, sort of necessarily just smash it, right, or just, you know, blowing up the, you know, trying to blow up the bomb, right? This is not going to work. You know, the movie version anyways, you got to cut the wires and you got to cut the wires in the right order. Perhaps if you don't cut them in the right order, the bomb goes off. And so for me, it's a question of, as we think about diffusing the bomb that is the state, how do we diffuse it? How do we get rid of it in a way that ensures that we cut the wires, right? That we, we peel back the layers in the right order to ensure that we do this in a way that doesn't make it blow up in our face and make matters worse. And, and what's interesting, by the way, is you know Sheldon Richmond is a good friend of mine, longtime friend of mine. And I think Sheldon doesn't quite believe the argument he made in that paper either, judging by some things he said on Facebook about my piece in the Freeman. So I think, again, there's another case where you know, when you're younger, you think one thing. When you get older, you see it. And it's a little more complicated as you get older. Now, one thing you bring up in this article is, you know, there's a couple things you, you address and there's a, a few methods you come at this from. And, and one of them is simply that the world we live in today, you know, there are different ways to get around the state, get around a lot of the coercive laws that a lot of libertarians are against. And you sort of say that makes our situation now different than it was when that article was written in 1981. So can you expand on that a little bit? Why do you see it being easier now to get around the sort of uh, the machinations of the state? Technology is a big part of it, right? I mean, you know, we can avoid the taxi monopoly with Uber. We can, you know, encrypt our email and avoid the the spying eyes of the state, right? We can, where it's easier for us to engage in exchanges by you know, sort of meeting people online in ways that that we couldn't have done in the past, and so all of those give us a certain degree of freedom and a freedom to work around government. You know, buying stuff over the internet that might you know, might get taxed in one place or another. It's all kinds of examples of this. So I think when back in the eighties. The sense was if you wanted to be free, you had to smash the part of the state that was, you know, making you unfree. And while that's still, I think, right, you can also become free by just driving around it, right? There's there's alternatives, there's ways around the barriers that the state sets up that didn't used to be there or at least weren't as easy to access. I think there's lots of examples. Do you think there's anything to this idea that, yeah, there there are new technologies that help us, you know, on the surface sort of avoid the state? Like, yeah, like you said, if we don't like taxis, oh, great, we can take a Lyft or an Uber. But, but the more that th- these technologies sort of expand, we see where Lyft and Uber and other companies like them eventually have to end up becoming part of the state in a way because, you know, a lot of cities wouldn't allow Uber and Lyft once they started, the word started sort of getting out and the taxi lobbies came and started lobbying and that kind of thing. And and now you have states and cities where, yeah, they are finally allowing Uber and Lyft in, but they're doing so in in a somewhat regulatory manner. They're, they're basically having to lobby to get this position. And now it's at the point where, yeah, we have Uber in, in one city or locale, but it's not like Johnny down the street could just open his car and start his own Uber business. So there is, yeah. there is just still an element of the the state's involvement in, in pretty much everything. Absolutely. Still, those are options, you know, we didn't have in the past. I don't think it's possible to sort of live this purely state-free life by working around it. All I'm suggesting is, is that it's easier to work around the state um, and it's easier to come up with, with alternatives to the things that the state controls than it used to be, say, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. 
There's two major paths you take towards the same point here. And I think a lot of libertarians might be able to get on with the first half of this, and that is the strategic part. And the the other part of that is the moral part. But we'll start with the strategic part first. So why don't you think that strategically it's very important to talk about doing things in, in sort of a gradual manner? Well, I think it's it's about creating alliances, right? There's not enough libertarians to smash the state. There just isn't, right? There's more than there were when Sheldon wrote that piece, but there's not enough. And so the only way we're going to generate any kind of rollback of the state, you know, in the real world, sort of all moving to New Hampshire or Mars or whatever, is we're going to have to work with other groups. For example, find coalitions, say, to roll back the state's involvement in the schools. We'll have to work with perhaps, hopefully, the left, what's left of it, to roll back, you know, the NSA or whatever. We'll have to work with entrepreneurs maybe to roll back economic regulation, though certainly many of them, you know, taxi companies like regulation, right? So we, we have to look for those opportunities where we can find alliances and, and coalitions to generate enough. And it's not just a matter of political support. It's kind of cultural support, right, where we can persuade people that these are good things. I think this generation of young people in their 20s, right, is growing up used to these kind of, you know, working around the state and the freedom to buy and sell from their from their phone and all these sorts of things. So they're there for the picking, right, if we can find the issues that are interesting to them, even if they don't call themselves libertarians. And I think that's the key strategically. Do you think that part of that strategy, that, that principled libertarians, people that are against the initiation of force, we can define it loosely that way, I suppose, do you think that when forming these alliances that people need to hide their sort of true principles or play politics in, in that kind of way? Or do you think that you need to do form these alliances, be reasonable, and but at the same time sort of put your whole philosophy out there? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right what you said at the end, Mark. I think you can you can say I'm a libertarian. I'd like to get rid of all these things, but you know what? This issue is really important, and you guys, and it's important to you too. So let's work together, right? I mean, you know, a group, let's say Black Lives Matter, right, wants to end the war on drugs to get black men out of prison. Okay, we don't have to agree with them on everything. They can be, you know, economically a bunch of socialists, but if they're really serious about moving forward on that particular issue, then they ought to be willing to work with us. And the fact that we differ on these other things shouldn't matter. The key, though, is if you're going to build those coalitions and work on particular issues, just stick to the issue. You don't have to insert your libertarianism into everything else or sort of insist on some kind of ideological purity from those folks. If they're sincere about rolling back the war on drugs, then let's work with them. Let's make it happen. Same with anti-war movement, too. Yeah, I mean, it's basically taking the sort of the, the concept of ending the left-right paradigm where we're always jumping to one side or the other to even further and saying, end all paradigms that we have and stop trying to jump to purist statements within every single sort of position we might take. That's right. You can still hold out the purist position as where you want to go, but you can recognize that if I can work with some people to make us freer, why shouldn't I work with them, right? You know, if you're letting purity be the enemy of, of improving freedom, I don't think you're getting it, right? Because you can stand there and be pure all day long, but it may not make any difference to actually making more people more free. Right. And, and libertarians are certainly uh, fall victim to this as well, because, you know, if, if, if you post a meme by Noam Chomsky, say, like a noted leftist, although uh, he calls himself an anarchist, too, there might be some philosophical confusion there. But I mean, if you, he's great on anti-war stuff, he's great on the empire. And if, but if you post a meme of him with some quote, you're going to get a lot of likes on it. But you're also going to get a lot of people saying, hey, that guy's a leftist. Why are you posting this stuff? He's a crazy progressive communist, yada, 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 because people are still trapped in that whole, you know, all or nothing sort of. Um, That's right sort of scope. 
those people get the freedom they deserve, which isn't much, right? If you're going to just reject people on the, you know, reject people with good ideas on the basis that they also have some bad ideas, you're going to be standing in a room with two people, right? I mean, there's no one who doesn't have flaws. I wrote a Freeman piece about this a while back, something like black hats and white hats or something like that, that how, how we have to, was, I even know when it was, it was in August of 2013, about how we have to not you know, just because someone believes some things that are wrong doesn't mean they don't also believe some things that are right. And we have to not dismiss the right stuff because they also say some wrong stuff. No one's pure. I mean, no one's pure. And now libertarians of all ilks, you know, regardless of if they agree on, on philosophy or their moral outlook, I think most libertarians share a sort of general moral outlook. They'll always disagree strategically. But this isn't just a strategic argument that you make here. You also make a moral argument for why it would be wrong to simply smash the state or, you know, push the button or what have you. So why don't you just explain the moral into this? Because that's something where I think you might receive a little more feedback, a little more traction, because people will say, well, what do you mean the moral argument? We all agree that coercion is wrong, that aggression is wrong. How can you possibly say it would be immoral to just end it overnight? Yeah. Well, okay. So I think the problem there, right, is that if you think coercion is the only moral thing that matters, that's a problem, right? And and, and while coercion is important, right, for me, I think there's also the, a moral obligation to try to make the world a better place for the least well-off among us. And and my argument I make in the piece is, to, is you know, using the sort of welfare system as an example. If you want to shut down the welfare system because it's coercive, you can do that. But if you do that, before anyway, before you've given people the opportunity, a more of an opportunity to earn an income, right? You're being grossly unfair to them. The welfare system has impoverished many Americans and along with economic regulations like minimum wage laws and licensing laws and the like, has cut off upward mobility for, for Americans. So if you, if you, you know, we've made it harder for poor people to get wealthier and then we've sort of bought them off with the welfare state. If you take away the welfare state, but don't open up the opportunities for them to make themselves, you know, move upward mobility, right? You're really being unfair to them. You're saying, oh, we're not going to let you move up and we're going to take away, you know, this, the, the analogy I use in the, in the article is, you know, if you break someone's legs and give them crutches, right? Okay, fine. But instead of worrying about taking away the crutches, stop hurting their legs, okay? That, that you know, we, we can't, if you've broken someone, if you broke someone's legs, in some sense, you owe them the crutches. And if you take away the crutches, that seems grossly, you know, immoral to me. So the, the real argument there was about the sequence, we peel back the onion, right? I think there's ways we have to do it that are more moral than others. And, and for me, one of those is freeing up the economy, particularly freeing up the opportunities for the lowest, for sort of low-income Americans before we take away the for welfare system. You can make a different argument about Social Security that, you know, people have planned their whole retirements around Social Security. And if you suddenly say, oh, just smash Social Security, you've left a lot of people out in the cold who, you know, plan their lives around a promise made by government. And, and if you want to say, well, they shouldn't have done that, I think, you know, you're imposing libertarian values on people in a way that, that just is impossible. And again, that's why I think while coercion is important, it's not the only moral value that we might consider when we think about moving towards a libertarian society. And let me add to that real quick. You know, any, a policy that increases net coercion is a bad policy, right, from a libertarian perspective. A policy that decreases net coercion, even if it doesn't decrease it a lot or there's other coercion left, is a good policy still, right? The point is to, if you think coercion is the problem, the point is to reduce it, even if you can't eliminate it at one sort of fell swoop. 
And even bouncing back to the strategic thing for a moment, I mean, if, if libertarians, let's say libertarians have a clean sweep of the House and Senate somehow, or, and, you know, a, a libertarian president comes in and the libertarians go, cool, we can, we can bring libertarianism here now. Welfare is done. Social security is done. That's the first step. And everyone goes, wait a minute. Wait, we were, we needed that. We were relying on that. What, what do you mean? And then suddenly you've got all these people who just associate libertarianism with heartlessness, with, with tossing people out on the streets and that sort of thing. Yeah, and this isn't quite the same as strategic, but from a rhetorical perspective, right, it's going to make us more friends and build more alliances if we focus on getting rid of the barriers to upward mobility, for example, than we do on yanking away the welfare state. Yeah, we should do both. But if we're sort of trying to make the case to other people to say, you know, that you know, we really do care about people, we want to give them opportunity, we want everyone to have a chance at becoming wealthier. Let's focus on the one thing more often as opposed to the blowing up the welfare state. So, Steve, let's just uh, envision something for a moment, if you don't mind. Um, you're sitting there. You've got the state, the bomb in front of you, <laughs> and you've got all these wires sticking out, and you you got to pick the first one to snip. So going with your analogy, what's the first wire that you would snip? What's the first policy that you would try to roll back immediately? Well, okay, so I'm, 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 you know, I'm Lord Czar of the, of the country. I can do whatever I want. Um, first thing I do is bring the military home. I mean, we got to stop killing brown people. It's that simple. You know, that's not even about America. That's low-hanging fruit as far as coercion goes. Let's stop being the world's policeman and the world's baby killer and everything else. Let's bring the troops home. So if we think about domestic policies, I mean, you know, it reflects my own biases as an economist and the things I'm interested in. But certainly I would look, one of the places I'd look is at monetary policy and the Fed, right? You know, if we, if there are ways you could, if not end the Fed, at least dramatically reduce what the, what the Fed's doing. But after that, I'm going to start looking at some of the things we've talked about. You know, what are the policies that can have major impact on the least well-off among us? End the war on drugs, you know, eliminate minimum wage laws, make public schools more competitive, you know, some form of school choice, um, occupational licensure laws, let's get rid of those, zoning laws, all this, you know, you know, all this kind of stuff that makes it really, really difficult for people with limited skills to either get those skills and get that education or, or to move up. I mean, that seems to me to be both, you know, practical and humane and coercion reducing set of things that I would, that I would try to do first. Well, why don't we take a look at just a couple of those examples real quick? And, and one of them you, you mentioned there is minimum wage. And some people might argue, well, yeah, I can see all the things you're saying about minimum wage and how it, you know, it hinders job opportunities and, and you know, it really just affects the people that are already poor. But, you know, some people might say, well, look, we have this corporatist economy. It's almost impossible to, you know, get a job or, or support yourself without working for some corporation. So what, what would you say to the argument that minimum wage is actually one of the last wires that should be pulled after, you know, corporate regulation is ended and after patents are ended and that sort of thing? Yeah. Except I, I think that's I think the premise in there that's wrong is this you can't get a job unless it's for some big corporation. I just don't think that's true. And for the and the reality is is that, you know, if that is true, one of the reasons is minimum wage laws, right? Walmart's not paying minimum wage. They're paying above minimum wage, right? It's mom and pop stores are getting harmed by minimum wage. So if you really want to make it more feasible for people to get jobs outside corporate America and sort of the corporate world, the first thing you ought to do is eliminate minimum wage laws because again, Walmart Walmart's in favor of raising the minimum wage, right? So, I, again, I'm not sure that's a good reason not to do it. I mean, I, and let me add, I mean, I, you know, I would, we got to only three items on my list, but certainly eliminating corporate subsidies and corporate welfare and all that kind of stuff would be very high on my list of things to do, uh, you know, arguably next after opening up the low end of the job market. 
let's touch on the Federal Reserve really quickly. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people will say, and this is, might be another area where smashing could cause a lot of harm, because if you just remove it one day, and suddenly, I mean, who knows what our money's worth, or, I mean, we really don't know right now anyway, yeah. but what are some ways, I guess, maybe from your economic background, you can see that you could reasonably sort of curtail a lot of the damage the Federal Reserve is doing while making people more freer and not, you know, not seeing people just completely lose their any savings they had overnight or what have you. I think in this case where we're smashing, you know, wouldn't have quite as much damage as it might in other places. But there's a whole bunch of proposals out there by, by the you know, people who write on free banking and so on to think in terms of freezing the monetary base and letting banks then issue their own currency, you know, uh, their, own, their own liabilities on top of that mon- frozen monetary base. There's some things you could do with how the Fed, you know, uh, again, put limits on the Fed conducting open market operations. I mean, there, there's ways you could do it without completely getting rid of the Fed right away. I think it's a really important and interesting intellectual and political challenge to think about how you would unwind the Fed, how you would peel back the layers. But but I think there, it's not quite the same as, say, the welfare thing, right? You still have to be careful in the order you do things. But the benefits from, you know, taking good whacks at the Fed and really reducing it are much greater, I think, with less risk than in some other places. I want to address your first one that you mentioned there because it is one that seems so simple and so obvious on the surface. You know, this is what Ron Paul would always say. It's what got him so much support from so many people, including myself, is when he would go up there and just say, bring them home, bring all the troops home. And, you know, knowing what our government is doing all around the world and all the terrible rights violations it's involved in, uh, it's very easy to say, let's just bring them all home. But do you think there's any concern that if you literally just brought troops home, say, tomorrow, that that could even be a situation where some damage could be caused? Let's just off the top of my head, I, again, I'm no foreign policy expert here, but let's say all our troops left South Korea tomorrow, and, we, and they actually wanted our troops there, and we said, sorry guys, we're, we're smashing the military at least, yeah. we're bringing this stuff home. Yeah. You think that there's a danger to actually fall out from that? Because who knows, maybe North Korea says, great, now we got it, now we can go in and, and take this whole peninsula over for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, realistically, you can't just say, bring everyone home, and then the next day, right, abandon all the bases and everyone. I mean, you got to have a process for doing it. And it seems to me, again, analogous, you know, cutting the wires in the right order. What do we do first? First, we stop bombing people, right? That's the easy <laughs> one. Let's stop bombing people. Let's get out of these other countries that clearly don't want us there. Then we can worry about what to do about troops in, say, you know, Western Europe or South Korea. I mean, those are the places we might go last. And that gives those places time to think about how they're not going to defend themselves in the absence of American help. So, sure. I guess what I'd say is there's kind of two levels of priority. There's priority about which issues libertarians might think are the most important that we want to tackle first. And then within each of those issues, there's got to be a process for how, you know, what, what's the most important thing we should do first. And then, you know, because, you, again, you're not just going to be able to snap your fingers and do anything overnight. Well, I shouldn't say anything. Some things, right? You can't just snap your fingers and do them overnight. So what order do we do them in? And it seems to me... Here's where, you know, ending the worst coercion or the, or the coercion that has the worst consequences first seems to me to be the smart way to go. Steve, there's one more example I would just like to toss at you because sure. it was brought up by a member of our forum on Facebook, the Lions of Liberty Forum, where a lot of our fans are in there asking questions. And I mentioned I was doing this interview today. And um, the great guy, a member of our forum, Kyle, he, he brought up a situation in Ohio where he's from. And this is something we've, we've written about on our website, Lions of Liberty, before. There's a, a big move for cannabis legalization going on in Ohio. Obviously, on its surface, that's a positive for anyone of a libertarian bent. Um, but part of this bill that, that's being pushed through is that it would legalize 
cannabis, but it would only allow this very specific one company to have basically a monopoly on the industry. So while, yes, marijuana is now you know becoming legalized and potentially less people are going to go to jail for it, which is obviously great, now you've also entrenched a cartel, essentially, in the state of Ohio, and, and who knows if you'll ever be able to roll that back. I'm just, I mean, obviously all these issues I could ever bring up are going to have shades of gray, are going to be very nuanced, but I'm just curious how you see something like that, where if you think even maybe something that gives us more freedom on the surface could actually entrench something that could be bad in a totally different way. I think there's no principled answer to those questions, right? It comes down to our judgment about, is this mixed bag a net gain or not? You know, my own view of that would be, yeah, I really wish that it weren't being handed over to a, to a private sector monopoly. But if we're really decriminalizing it, and that means we're not going to be putting people in jail, and that means we're going to get maybe some Fourth Amendment rights back, and the people being put in jail will mostly, you know, will not be disproportionately non-white, right? I mean, these are all pretty good reasons and pretty significant benefits, it seems to me, that we might want to weigh off against, you know, the cost of, of it being done in a way that we think is less than ideal. But again, that's a judgment on my part. I don't think there's anything sort of, you know, that won't be true for everyone, okay? And I think other people can see it a different way. But it seems to me, you know, if you have the opportunity to to get back some Fourth Amendment rights and to keep people out of cages, uh, that's pretty important. Sure. I mean, and any issue that involves nuance, which pretty much all the examples that we've talked about do in some way, there's never a 100% right or wrong answer. You can have a principle that's correct, but how it actually applies to a nuanced situation is a totally different thing. And that, that's why I think your article is so important to point this stuff out. I'm really glad you posted this this article. We'll, of course, link to it in the show notes for the show as well. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, why don't you just give everyone a quick roundup of how uh, anything I might have missed that you're working on, how they can find your latest book and how they can contact you. Well, the best way to follow what I'm doing is Facebook. My personal page is, you know, I'm at the friend limit, but I have a public figure page that you can certainly like. And you can, my, my personal page, you can follow, though you can't, you can't uh, friend me. Um, that's a b- good way. Bleeding Heart Libertarians and Coordination Problem, another good way. Every two weeks at Fee, as you mentioned, I have a column there. The new book, Hayek's Modern Family, is available at Amazon. It's very expensive because it's an academic book. I'm hopeful I'll be able to get a paperback of that out sometime soon. You might you know, after a while, people might search around the web, see if they can find a PDF of it. There's ways that those things get up there, you know. Your listeners who don't know, I uh, do videos for Learn Liberty, a uh, project of Institute for Humane Studies at learnliberty.org. So you can check out some of my videos there, too. Steve Horowitz, thank you so much once again for joining us on Lines of Liberty. and Keep up the great work. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure to be here. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Steve Horwitz. I've got some thoughts of my own, of course, coming up in the last roar in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about our great sponsors. And Steve mentioned getting around the state and ways we can get around a lot of the regulations and the laws that we hate. And one thing people of many, many political persuasions, not just libertarians, not even just conservatives, are upset about is Obamacare and the onerous regulations and mandates, as well as the requirement to purchase insurance being forced upon all of us. And one way to get around that is by checking out our friends at Health Excellence Select and the awesome concept of health sharing. That's right. You do not have to purchase this corporatist health insurance that lays out all the different things that you need to have and all the premiums that you can pay and all of this stuff. You don't need to do that. 
It might make sense for some people. I'm not saying nobody should go on to Obamacare. If you're in a low-income bracket, that probably is the most logical thing for you to do. But if you are like me and buy your own health insurance, or if you're someone who's getting kicked off your health insurance because of this, well, you need to look into Health Excellence Select. Find the doctors you need and get the services you need at the best price. They have 24-7 access to doctors via Skype, so you don't even need to go to a doctor's office half the time or spend a dime. And you can get all sorts of discounts on medical services and dental services. There really is no reason not to be looking into this. You can learn more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. We are also brought to you today by our good friend Dan McCall and his website libertymaniacs.com where you can find all sorts of awesome political and satirical gear. And guys, I don't just say that. I've got five or six of his t-shirts sitting in my drawer right now. This is really awesome stuff. If you haven't seen the Donald Trump shirt, we shall overcome. Let me tell you, go to libertymaniacs.com slash pages slash lions and check it out. Because if you go through that link, you can receive a 10% discount off your entire order. You can also do so just by simply using the discount code lions of liberty at checkout. But be sure to check out libertymaniacs.com. Wear your beliefs on your sleeve, like me. All right, guys, and this concept that I discussed today with Steve Horowitz is a very, very important one. And uh, I will say I've had somewhat of a transformation myself when it comes to this issue because I was in my mid to late 20s when I was discovering libertarianism and really reading about these ideas. But you could say I intellectually grew up uh, reading a lot of Murray Rothbard, and I think his contributions are excellent in many ways. But when it comes to this smash the state thing, or the smash the onion, I suppose you might say, or the pushing the button, as Leonard Reed first coined the term, we need to think about things in a different way. Because, yeah, I'm an abolitionist. I want to end slavery overnight. Some ills are so blatant and wrong that you can rally the public behind them, and you cannot do anything but say, this is blatantly wrong. This needs to end. To me, we can compare that right now to the war on drugs. There is no reason to wind down the war on drugs. Nobody is harmed other than the people that are doing the harming, that are profiting off the war on drugs, the prisons that are profiting off using prison labor, the corporations that are profiting off the same thing, the pharmaceutical companies that are profiting off the fact that legal alternatives such as marijuana, of course that's changing, and other you know street drugs you might call them are, are providing to them the competition from those drugs. They want that stuff eliminated. There are some people that will be harmed in economic terms, I guess you might say, but those people should be harmed. <laughs> the people that are doing injustice should lose, you know, whatever profits they are reaping from injustices. So some things I think are very easy to say, end this now. This is wrong. If slavery existed, I would say, yes, that's one of them. And today we have the war on drugs and that's one of them to me. End it now. But when we talk about ending the state, when we talk about ending everything the government is currently doing, well, hey, that's not a very philosophical position to take. You know, people are just going to think you're crazy. You know, end the state, end the government, but then what? Then what? Then what? That's what most people are going to think when they hear that. And unless you have all those answers, I mean, you, you might want to point them to, you know, 16 Murray Rothbard books or, or what have you, or, you know, books about liberty and law and the private development of law. Look, these are all great things to look into. But that's not how you're going to change the world. It's just not. It's really not. We have to form alliances. We have to find people that have common ground and hold hands with them strongly, firmly, and make changes to policies that are currently harming people. And we need to do that in a reasonable and rational way. 
Now, I am an abolitionist in the sense, yeah, I want to end all coercion tomorrow. If I could snap my fingers and end all the injustices at once, I would. However, the way our system is set up, while there are many injustices taking place, there are many attempts to address those injustices within the system. So, look... Many things that the government has done over the years, such as regulation, high taxation, patents, for example, a lot of those things have hindered people economically in many, many ways. Those things are wrong. I want to end those things. And then there have been other paths taken through government to sort of hedge against those things, okay? Now, some of those are misguided. I don't think minimum wage is a wise way to hedge against the ills of the state, But some ways include welfare. People are given welfare because a lot of people are poor, and we can point to a lot of the government policies that are creating a lot of that poverty. But you got to look at the right order to do things, because if you just take away welfare tomorrow and you don't at the same time or earlier end all the regulation, end everything that is hindering people's progress, end the education system that is hindering them intellectually, and change that, you're, you're leaving people basically out to dry. And not only is that strategically a problem, because people, progressives on the left, are going to say, you're heartless, you have no heart, you're just a greedy capitalist, and they'll, they'll get this image of the guy with the top hat and the cigar just lapping his way to the bank. Well, you know what? If we advocate to just end welfare and end the state and end everything tomorrow, well, that is the image they're going to get. And this is an analogy uh, presented by my friend Jonathan Hubbard, so I want to give a shout-out to him. But you can look at it as a game of Jenga, okay? And every single policy is sitting in this sort of Jenga thing. Now, the way you lose Jenga is you pull out the wrong block and the whole thing topples over. Okay, we don't want to lose Jenga, guys. We want to win. Winning Jenga, in this case, is advancing liberty. It's creating a freer society. Losing Jenga, having it all tumble down, that would be inviting in tyranny, for example. So if you just smash the state, and you pull out the wrong block, and the Jenga tower just falls over, well, someone's going to come in and say, hey, look how these guys play Jenga. Get them out of here! And then that's how you invite in tyranny. That's when the people look to a strong leader, like Adolf Hitler did. The economy of Germany was in shambles. People were on the streets. He came in and said, well, we're going to institute these changes. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to take charge. Well, we all know what happened there. It's extremely important to pull the blocks out in the right order. Pull that war on drugs. Snatch it right out. Great, because the whole thing's not going to come tumbling down from that. But if you pull welfare out first, well, now all you've got are a bunch of people on the street... A bunch of people who see the libertarians, oh, they took away my welfare, but I'm still hindered here. I still have no way to advance myself in life. That's a problem. I'm opposed to redistributive income. I'm opposed to welfare in concept in a vacuum. But if we're going to talk about actually ending policies, actually repealing onerous legislation, that must be done in a proper order. And I'm glad that Steve was able to come on the show and explain his position because I think this is a very important subject, both strategically and morally, as we discussed. Now, I mentioned Kyle. Kyle from the Lions of Liberty Forum. He got his question in to Steve Horowitz, and you guys can too. If you're on Facebook, well, you should do a couple things. First, you should go to facebook.com slash lionsofliberty and like our main Facebook page. But then you can also go in your little search bar and type Lions of Liberty Forum, and then you can join our private group and get engaged in these conversations. You can talk to myself, talk to some of our fellow contributors, talk to some past guests of the show. When I have guests on, I'll ask you for feedback. I'll ask you for input. I'll ask you if you have any questions. And just like Kyle, your question might make it onto the show. 
So please come on over and join us in the Lions of Liberty forum. If you're a tweeter, well, find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. You can find links to everything we discuss on today's show over at our website at lionsofliberty.com slash 148. You can also hear us on the radio at libertytalk.fm, 6 p.m. Eastern, every single Saturday and Sunday, and throughout the week on the Liberty Radio Network at lrn.fm. And be sure to come on back this upcoming Thursday where we will have a Lions of Liberty podcast first. You may have heard several of our reaction shows to the GOP debates. Well, it's not just the GOP we're going to be looking at, guys, because every single one of these people that's running for president, well, logically, may become president. And their beliefs and policies are going to affect our lives likely in one way or another. So we will be covering the Democratic debate. That's right. Right after the debate's over, we're going to be recording a podcast, looking at Everything that's been going on on the Democratic side of things will record a reaction show in the style of libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor, meaning we'll be drinking and we'll be talking and we'll be having a good old time and looking at these Democratic candidates for the very first time on this show. Should be a very interesting time. Until then, folks, live long and live free. Editing and mastery.